0: Passage today comes from Luke, chapter eleven, verses thirty-seven to fifty-four. Luke chapter eleven, verses thirty-seven to fifty-four. Returning to our study in the Gospel according to Luke, let me encourage you now to give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter eleven, beginning in verse thirty-seven while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of, of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also! For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Would you bow your hearts with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come to you today asking for your help as we look at a very challenging and convicting passage. Lord, we pray that you would come now and open up our hearts that we might hear your word. Lord, help us to to think about the kind of religion that meets your approval. And Lord, I pray that as we consider this that we would not engage in self-comparison with others. Lord, that we would simply hold ourselves up to the mirror of your word. Show us our need of you, draw us to yourself. And we pray that you would work in us that we might see your fullness, your sufficiency to meet our needs according to the riches of your glory. In Christ Jesus. Help us today. And we ask this all in the name of your Son. Amen. Oh, brothers and sisters, we come to this portion of the gospel according to, the, to Luke and find the Lord Jesus reclined at table. And he is there with a group of Pharisees and teachers of the law. One of the Pharisees had asked him to dinner. The text doesn't tell us what exactly uh, the motivation of that Pharisee was in doing so, whether there was some degree of sincere uh, interest in the teachings of Christ, or if this was just another one of their tests designed to trap them, uh, to trap him. But either way, Jesus goes, and he, he sits down at this meal reclined at table. Now, we have run into the Pharisees a number of times in our study of this gospel, but it would do us well, particularly at this juncture, to take a minute and just consider what exactly a Pharisee was. The reason that I that I say that is that in today's terms, in our vernacular, the word Pharisee is used almost exclusively as a pejorative it's a put-down, it's what you call someone who is a, a spiritual hypocrite. And there's a reason for that, as we're, we're going to see in our text, but we associate that so readily with hypocrisy because of the way it's used in our culture that we may uh, be prone not to hear the relevance of this text to our own lives. The word in our Common parlance is virtually synonymous with hypocrisy. It's not altogether off-base, but I want us to see first who the Pharisees were just as a people, lest we miss the, the application of this text to people like us. If we don't understand something about their background We are going to be tempted to read a passage like this thinking about those people, those kinds of people out there who aren't really like us at all. And we're going to miss the ways God might want to use a passage like this to expose our hearts and to work in us for his glory. So, just a few things to know about the Pharisees first, they're zealous men. They're zealous about the things of God. The Pharisees were a religious sect uh, that were serious about the faith. They were, in some sense, like uh, fundamentalists today, in the best sense of, of the word, that they wanted to hang on to those fundamentals of the faith that they felt other people in the Jewish community had left behind. They were devout They were very serious about their religious duties. They were concerned about doing what the law required. They were meticulous in their attention to it, in their adherence to the law as they understood it and applied it. They were also separatists. The word Pharisee means set apart. And so they wanted to distinguish themselves, not just from the world, not just from a Gentile, unbelieving peoples, but from the rest of Israel, too, who had grown too secular for their, for their liking. Now, I preface our examination of this passage with that introduction simply to offer you this proposal that we actually have much more in common with the Pharisees than we might be apt to think. Our commitment to the things of God, our desire to take seriously the word of God in every respect, our desire to have a high view of Scripture, even our tendency to think of ourselves with a bit of a a separatist Mentality, a separatist mindset. Those of us in the Reformed Baptist camp um, have historically, for hundreds of years, have been known as particular Baptists uh, for a reason, for our desire to rightfully distinguish ourselves from some other positions that we don't believe to be biblically warranted. And yet, all of this means that we are. We may be forced to uncomfortably admit we have much more in common with the Pharisees than we might like to say. None of the things that I mentioned, having a high view of the word, uh, being particularist on particular positions, necessarily give way to the kind of errors that the Pharisees came to be known for, But we have in place a number of stated commitments and positions that, apart from a vibrant and living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, can actually prove to be the seedbed for spiritually ruinous hypocrisy. We care about doctrine. We have a high view of God. We want to honor the Lord's day and keep it holy. We want to know how his word applies to our lives, every aspect of it. But here's the danger. We often think of ourselves as doing those things over against those professing believers who don't. And so in that sense, we have already primed the pump, if you will, for the kind of uh, pretension and hubris that we often associate the Pharisees with. Do you see the danger there? Do you see the, the, the connection? And yet, because this word Pharisee has come to be used in this almost exclusively pejorative sense, the irony and the danger is that we can actually find ourselves standing over them as we read a passage like this, wagging our finger, so to speak, not, reason that, not, not realizing that we've already uh, fallen into the same trap of spiritual pride and blindness and hypocrisy that they were known for. And I realize that starting off a sermon like this has the potential to set everyone on edge before we've even really gotten into the text before, but I want, at all, but I I want us so earnestly to see that we are subject to the danger that we see in them that we might be warned away from it. And I take comfort from the fact that Jesus spoke with such candor and even such directness and uh, forcefulness to the issue that we can just open up this text today and ask the Lord to expose our own hearts, use it for our good in our lives. So go to the text with me. The Lord has been invited to this meal by a Pharisee. Now, certain Traditions and customs and conventions are always in place in these kinds of settings. The extension of hospitality brings with it certain kinds of expectations. I have said before, if you go to someone's home for the very first time, um, you are no doubt walking in wondering now are these one of those families is this one of those families that that takes their shoes off when they're inside the house or that doesn't take their shoes off in the house and so while you're you're greeting them you're looking around you're trying to see what are the expectations what are the social conventions that are in place well jesus is going to get, go against established convention In a very big way in this passage, he is going to denounce and decry the emptiness of vain, hollow religion, and he's going to do it all around the dinner table of his host, if you can imagine this. Now, before we get to that surprise, first the surprise of what he doesn't do in verse 37. He went in... And reclined at table. Those words seem innocuous enough to us, but for the host, you can see in the passage they were a source of great consternation. You look at verse 38 the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. He was astonished. Now, the issue at stake here is not uh, physical, but ritual cleanliness. This has nothing to do with hygiene. So sorry, kids, you cannot go and say, but mom, uh, Jesus didn't wash his hands before dinner. This passage has nothing to do with hygiene, and I have no doubt that Jesus uh, chose not to wash his hands intentionally in this particular episode. This is just one of the many things the Pharisees had developed as what they understood to be an implication of the law, which over time had become so enshrined in the the traditions that they associated with the faith, they had become so uh, inseparably linked to what they understood it to mean, to follow God, to be a part of authentic Judaism, that to not practice them was to tread on sacrilege. It was to mark yourself as being outside the covenant community. And you you see here that while the Pharisee doesn't actually give voice to his astonishment, Jesus nevertheless turns to him and addresses him. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. He uses this earthenware vessel as an object lesson, drawing from passages like Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 32. Imagine you have a dirty cup and something unclean has found itself in there. An unclean animal, for example, has has been discovered in it. That, is, that would have not been an uncommon situation in the ancient world. Or suppose someone sick uh, drinks out of this cup. He says to the, to the Pharisees, you are like one who, who takes that cup and you spend an enormous amount of time polishing the outside of the cup, but you don't do anything at all to the inside. You don't do anything to that uncleanness, to that filth within. Now, remember, brothers and sisters, he's talking about spiritual realities here. He's talking about these religious zealots, and he's saying that for all of their enthusiasm, for all of their apparent uh, commitment and devotion to the things of God, they've got it all wrong we have got it all wrong when it comes to the problem at hand, when it comes to the problem that is facing every man, the problem of sin. The Bible says that we have all become like one who is unclean. Not just on the outside, but through and through. The Bible tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The inner man, friends, is full of wickedness and corruption. It is spiritually unclean. But what do we find in the Pharisees? There was a greater concern with outward appearances than there was with the inward condition of the heart. They were scrupulous about giving attention to the outward condition, to the outside. If you looked at these men from the outside, they looked like very religious men. They looked extremely pious from the outside. They were the very picture of religion. They came to church, no doubt, in their Sunday best. They knew all of the rites and the rituals that you needed to adopt if you were going to keep up appearances with the with the with the public but inside inside what was there there was all manner of avarice and corruption and wickedness and depravity and so for all of the of the piety that you were able to observe on the outside beloved it was a false piety it was a pretense of piety. It was not the authentic article. It was not a piety born out of the work of the Spirit through the Word of God within the heart of man. It was false. It was There was no comportment between the, the inside and what they represented to other men on the outside. To put it another way, it was just externalism. Just externalism. And Jesus calls them fools because of it. Which signals to us they are not the picture of wisdom and devotion to God that they suppose. They think highly of themselves. But they've got it all wrong. You remember what the Lord told Samuel as he was surveying Uh, Jesse's sons looking for Israel's future king the Lord's anointed David sees uh, Eliab and he is or uh, Samuel sees Eliab and he sees this this man that is stately he is tall he's full of vigor and strength surely this is the one Surely this is the kind of man you want to serve as king to lead the people of God into war. God says no. Yahweh says to Samuel, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. As it applies to to our text today, external purity so to speak, apart from internal purity, is no purity, no purity at all. The outward form of religion will not do, and it cannot save. It's a religious sham. In fact, it's an abomination in the sight of God. We may be keeping up appearances with one another, but we are not deceiving the Lord. We do not deceive God. So there is this alarming disparity operating in the heart of these men. And I want you to see how Jesus addresses them in verse 40. He says, Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? In other words, isn't the Creator concerned with the whole man? If that is the case, don't both belong to him. Doesn't both the outside and the inside belong to him? Ought not there be to be integrity of the whole before the one who sees both in and out? How then do we arrive at purity, both in the outward and the inward parts? This is the critical question. This is the question that is prompted by this text, and it's very instructive to see what Christ says here. If you look at verse 41, he says, But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Now normally when you think of almsgiving. You think of giving to the church, uh, making some kind of donation to the poor. Here Jesus says, give unto God those things that are within, those things on the inside. You've spent all your time worrying about how you look on the outside. No, no, no. Give sacrificial heed to those things that are within, to the life of the inner man, to the soul, to the will, to the, to the affections, to the orientation of your heart. David said in Psalm 51 and verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. And a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Render to God chiefly and firstly your heart. Give him your will. If that's where the center of your tension is, behold, everything is clean for you. The rest will fall into line because there will be integrity of the whole. So notice this. Jesus does not say, look, You've done a great job on the outside. What you need to do now is just to give some attention to the inside. He doesn't do that. Actually, what he says here is, You have a contradiction in terms. Religious externalism is no substitute for the inward transformation of the heart. Purity that's just surface level isn't purity at all. What you need is a total redefinition of purity. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. If the heart be washed, if the heart be cleansed, then what flows from it, brothers and sisters, is going to be pure in the sight of God. Is going to be pleasing in his eyes. Everything that flows out of the heart, everything that proceeds from the inner man is going to be clean. It's going to be honorable in the sight of God. Church, Christ's concern wasn't just to try to control people's behavior and conduct. His purpose for you is not to, to, to hand you a set of rules by which to live the gospel comes to change the hearts of sinners and in doing so actually transforms our whole lives. It transforms our hearts so that what? We want to follow Christ. We want to follow hard after him. We want to please him. Our desires are for him. His ways flow from the heart. Church, the problem that we're facing As sinners, first and foremost, isn't that we do wrong things, and therefore we need to start doing right things, like scrubbing up the externals, working on our our actions and our behavior. Our problem is that our hearts are corrupt. Our hearts are corrupt. Now, if I ignore that reality, if I simply try to deal with things on the outside, I become like that whitewashed sepulcher Jesus talked about. I start to parade about in a robe of self-righteousness while nothing at all has really changed on the inside. If you look at your life, if you stand in front of the mirror and you see yourself as basically a good person. Your temptation will be to adopt religion, to tack on some morals to the neglect of the inside. But beloved, what we need is not just a reform of the outside. We need a regeneration on the inside. Nothing but the transforming power of the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace operating within the heart of man is able to make my heart clean. Now, starting in verse 42, Jesus issues six woes to the Pharisees and to the teachers of the law, the lawyers, three to each. Now, a woe in this context uh, isn't just a lament in the, way, in the way we might find ourselves saying on occasion, woe is me. It is not just an expression of sadness. A woe In the biblical sense, is a pronouncement of impending divine judgment. Something that is hanging over a man if he continues on the same path. So it carries with it a call for repentance. And each one of these woes has its own lesson. So, with that idea in view, here are six big Thoughts about the nature of spiritual hypocrisy that we see in the scribes and Pharisees. First, Jesus warns about the danger of majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. Verse 42, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. We might read this, and it might sound almost humorous to us on one level to, to, to picture someone standing there with their herbs and to think one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine for me, one for God. We might read this and mistakenly get the impression that Jesus is uh, making a mockery out of their attention to seemingly insignificant details, uh, religious minutiae. That is not what he is saying. And you you can see that that's clear from how he goes on. He says, These you ought to have done. So, no problem there. What is the problem? These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. What were the others? Justice, the love of God. What a massive oversight that is. Not just an oversight, but what a what a terrible incongruity in the life of a man who gives such attention to these relatively insignificant details to the neglect of justice and the love of God, to give such scrupulous attention to these kinds of minor details, while at the same time you show injustice to the fatherless, and to the widow, and to the orphan, or you fail to show kindness and mercy to brothers and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ, let alone have our hearts devoid of the love of God, what a farce that kind of religion is. What a mockery that makes out of the Christian faith. And yet, how easy this is to do. How easy this is to focus all of our our energy and our attention on relatively small things to the exclusion of the weightier matters of God's law. Not that tithing's Not important, not that giving's unimportant, not that some parts of God's word can be safely ignored, but when it comes to the love of God and of neighbor, if we are preoccupied, if we're preoccupied with relatively minor things, we have deceived ourselves about the nature of pure and undefiled religion before the Lord. We could say it this way. If we think of ourselves as very religious People, but the heart doesn't spill over with warm affection for the Redeemer and our fellow man. We need to start asking ourselves whether we really know God at all. The Bible tells us that whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, not whoever tithes out of their spice drawer. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. If affection for God isn't self-evident in our lives, it's time to get on our knees. It's time to begin to examine ourselves and see where we stand with God cry out to him for a work of the Spirit within our hearts. If we devote ourselves to a list of religious to-dos while our heart is cold toward man, toward God, how does God's love abide in us? Even spiritually dead, unregenerate men are able to do good works. You realize that, friends? You can give, you can tithe, you can participate in all manner of outward acts of righteousness, but if it is not motivated by a love for God, an appreciation of the free grace of the gospel, found in the Lord Jesus Christ, a desire to see his justice and righteousness established in the earth, it's hypocrisy. It's moralism. It's a man-made righteousness. Righteousness. And it will lead to a false confidence as you think about standing before the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one that's based on moralism, on your works, not the finished work of Christ. Our only hope is to be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law a righteousness that is based in what we do and the things that that we say and how we look before other men, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. It's our only hope. Number two, spiritual hypocrisy is marked by a desire for the approval of man more than the approval of God. Jesus says in verse 33, uh, 43, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. The Pharisees' service and uh, devotion to God was a thinly veiled guise, beneath which was a craving for applause, a lust for the approval and esteem of men, uh, Their so-called ministry was discharged uh, with this uh, carefully, uh, careful eye toward how they could exact the most praise out of other men, not to bring glory and honor to God, but glory and honor to themselves. That meant that when they uh, went to the synagogue, they did everything they could to make sure that they were seated up front uh, with all of the dignitaries where everybody could see them Lay eyes on them. Their hearts were thrilled at the idea of being greeted in the marketplace. The idea here is not just that someone would come and say hello. Uh, Jesus says it even more explicitly in Matthew 23, that they loved the idea of being publicly called rabbi, having that that title affixed to their name in front of of all. There's nothing wrong uh, with giving honor to whom honor is due. But when that is what your heart craves, when you find yourself longing for the praise of man more than you do the praise of God, you're after the self-exaltation instead of the exaltation of the Lord. There you have found your idol. There you have found the God that you adore. Now, how do we know whether this kind of A hypocrisy has infected our souls. How do we know whether this is present in our lives? One of the ways that we examine ourselves is by asking, am I the same person in private as I am in public? Is the zeal and enthusiasm that I have before men in my prayers, in my service, in my singing, in my giving? Is it, is it mirrored in my private devotion to God when no one else but him can see? When it's just me and the Lord together? That will tell you whose approval you most long to have. Thirdly, Phariseeism has a corrupting effect on others. Jesus says, woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. This, as of yet, is the most damning of all. Here you have a picture of someone who, spiritually speaking, is like a corpse lying in an unmarked grave and they're just waiting for someone to unwittingly walk over them, in which case, under the old covenant, they would become ceremonially unclean. Uh, Ceremonial cleanliness was a picture under the old covenant of the spiritual purity that was necessary to come before the presence of God. Well, this is what spiritual hypocrisy does. It has a corrupting influence on the souls of men. Now, hold on to that idea for a minute and contrast that with the public image that the the Pharisees had, these elite religious leaders, paragons of virtue, holiness. You begin to see what Jesus is saying here. Not only are they not the exemplars of religious purity, but they're actually defiling other people. Spiritual hypocrisy is a cancer in the church. It teaches others to be pretenders of piety. Lloyd Jones said that this was the chief plague of the evangelical faith spiritual hypocrisy. It is more dangerous, more alluring. Then rank sin, because it seduces us into thinking we're spiritually alive when we're dead. Where it exists, it poses a real risk of contaminating others, Jesus says. We're going to look at this in even more detail uh, next week, Lord willing, where Jesus says to beware the leaven of the Pharisees, something that sneaks in unawares, it has the power to infect those that it touches. Now we come to the second half of the passage and find another group of bystanders, the lawyers here. These are those religious lawyers we've seen, experts in the law of God. Uh, Sometimes they're called scribes in the Bible. Think of them like doctors of theology. They're Bible scholars. They were there to help interpret the law to serve as guides to the Pharisees in their understanding and their application of the law. So one of these men, one of the lawyers, pipes up, and it's a little bit humorous there, in verse 45, where he says, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. He feels indicted by it all, which means at least he's understood something. He's been listening. He has apprehended, at least to some degree, what Jesus has said. But, of course, the reason that he feels insulted by it means that he doesn't think that it's true. And Christ doesn't mince words. He said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. What do we see here? A Pharisaic spirit heaps up legalistic requirements the Lord himself does not require. That's number four. A Pharisaic spirit heaps up legalistic requirements the Lord himself does not require. To put it bluntly, their ministries were cruel. They were harsh, people felt beat down and crushed by them. They were merciless and exacting. How was how that the case? Well, they loaded all of these, the, the, these people, the, the Jewish people, down with man-made traditions, with the legislation of extra-biblical commands. They read into the Scriptures. And where the Lord had set the consciences of men free, where the Lord said, liberty... Uh, These teachers of the Lord said, law. They gave more and more rules. On top of that, they didn't take on the burdens themselves. They didn't practice what they preached. They gave these people a list of rules and said, here, do this. But they didn't come alongside them. What a tragedy that kind of ministry is. They didn't come alongside to encourage them, to build them up. They just issued them from on high. Now contrast that with the the ministry of the Apostle Paul. His manner uh, of approach, Philippians 4 and verse, verse 9, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. What a blessing to have uh, those that we can look up to who, have, who, who are able to say, by God's grace, uh, what you have learned and received and heard and even seen in me. Practice these things. The scribes loaded people down with burdens hard to bear. How different that is from authentic gospel ministry. Gospel ministry targets the heart. It doesn't start with rules and regulations. It does bring the law of God to bear, but it doesn't stop there. It points men to the glory and the beauty and the compassion of Christ, to his grace, to his goodness, and to his love. One old hymn writer said this, "'Run, John, and work,' the law commands, "'yet finds me neither feet nor hands,' but sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and lends me wings. How wonderfully different are Christ's ways from the ways of men. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. Jesus did not come to crush us He didn't come to crush us with burdens too hard for us to bear. He beckons us, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now notice there he doesn't say he doesn't have a yoke. The Lord Jesus doesn't invite you to come to him only to have the the burden of sin and works removed and then to be on your way. He has a yoke. He aims to, to bind you to himself. His purpose for you includes his loving, sovereign care and lordship, directing The course of your life, so there is a yoke, but it's not a difficult yoke. It's not a troublesome yoke. It's not a heavy burden. His commandments are not burdensome. The fifth woe we find in verse 47. Jesus says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. This may may seem a little bit confusing to us at first because it looks like they are paying tribute to the prophets that came before him, and that's actually the point here. Jesus is using irony. On the surface, it looks like these men are venerating God's mouthpieces of old. But Jesus takes that idea and he plays off of it, and he says that, well, By doing so, you're actually witnessing to the fact that you are in league with your fathers who killed them. It's like saying, with every stone that is erected, better off dead than alive. You could summarize the lesson here by saying spiritual hypocrisy builds a monument to a legacy of unbelief. Jesus traces the redemptive history of God from Abel to Zechariah. This is not uh, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. This is uh, Zechariah, the last prophet to die uh, in the Old Testament. You can read about him in Second Chronicles chapter 24. He met his end at the hand of King Joash. But Jesus is saying here, you have this long legacy of unbelief in opposition uh, in the, uh, to the Lord's uh, people, to his mouthpieces. And now, what does Christ say? I will send them prophets and apostles, some of them whom they will uh, kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. By rejecting Christ, they stand in line with their father's and will give an account for their unbelief friends the way uh, to honor a prophet the the way to honor Christ is not by building large memorials but by obeying him by walking in faith and repentance you remember how uh, Isaiah opens up his book and he, he says, The Lord says through him, What is the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of your burnt offerings and your calling of convocations and all of these solemn assemblies. Wash yourselves, make yourself clean, remove the evil. Of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Enough of the hypocrisy, enough of the duplicity and unbelief. Come and be cleansed. Now finally, verse 52, hypocrisy will lock you and others out of the kingdom of God. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. For all of their supposed interest in the things of God and the law of God, you see what Jesus says. They were shutting the door of the kingdom of God in people's faces. Not even entering into it themselves. You see how spiritually ruinous hypocrisy is? The Pharisees' righteousness was a self-righteousness. They didn't have any power to save. By their hypocrisy, by their externalism, by their legalism, by their moralism. They had taken away the key of knowledge, the good news of the gospel, which unlocks to the heart of men the Lord Jesus Christ in his saving power. We need to hear of Christ, his person, his work is what we need, not our work, Not our righteousness, not our accomplishments or achievements, but the work of Christ. He alone is able to effect that change that we so desperately need in the inner man. The washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now I ask you today, beloved, where is your heart? Are you you set on edge by Jesus' words, or is your heart tender to him? Do you see the potential, or maybe even the the reality, of spiritual hypocrisy within your heart? The passage here closes with the scribes and the the Pharisees pressing Jesus hard. Uh, They provoke him. They are... Uh, seeking to lie and wait for him. They want to catch him. In other words, all that he has said has fallen on deaf ears. Christ had exposed uh, the hearts of these men to his glorious light, but they did not want to let go of their practices. They didn't want to let go of their religiosity. Their externalism, they would rather cling to a false piety than face the recognition that they needed a heart that was altogether new. Well, church, Jesus exposes our hypocrisy for our good as well, that we might run to him, that we might discover the true righteousness that only his blood can afford We pray together. Father, we bow our hearts to you as those who find ourselves very much in need of your mercy. Lord, we come confessing our sin today. We come acknowledging that we are far more like the Pharisees than we want to admit. God, we pride ourselves in what we know. Our flesh likes to uh, compare ourselves to others, to take note of how good we are and how much others have failed. Lord, we find ourselves longing for the praise of men more than we long for your commendation. I pray that you would forgive us. God, I pray that you would wash us clean. Lord, I pray that you would cleanse us and renew our hearts. Sanctify us, God, for your name's sake. Lord, I pray that our purity would be a sincere and true purity. God, I pray that we would render to you first those things that are within the inner man, that the lives that we lead would be pure and pleasing in your sight, that you would get glory from your church. In Jesus' name, amen.